0: Basically, they're purchasing your invoices from a re- to a retailer. So as soon as I invoice a retailer like CVS or Whole Foods, they buy those invoices from me. They give me liquidity that I can use to then pay my manufacturer before the retailer pays me.
1: Social entrepreneurs are driven to create an impact that improves their life, the life of others, the environment which in the end does have more meaning to the world. Making a profit is not enough for them. When you listen to episode 67 to 70, you hear how passionate this women founders to their goals of social impact. How they have to balance the mission that they so passionately believe in with their financing strategy and profit. Listen to the thought process they use in making any business decision how they chose their priorities, how they use profit as a tool to accomplish the real impact. This woman founders in episode 67 to 70 are disruptor. I am amazed by their mission. I'm inspired by their business strategy. I'm inspired by their financing strategy. There is a reason why they choose debt financing which means they don't dilute the equity in their own business. What does debt financing mean for a business? When should a business consider it? How does it work? What are the common mistakes made by borrowers? What are lenders looking for in borrowers? What are the different types of debt financing out there? Which one is best for my business? If you have been asking this question and you've been trying to figure it out yourself, then you are in luck, my friend. Over the next few weeks, every Tuesday on a weekly basis, I will share how mission-driven women entrepreneurs like yourself are able to scale your business using strategic debt financing. This series of strategic debt financing to grow your business will be divided into three parts where each episode is short, but it will give you the important information you need to know to feel confident with your decision to either include or exclude debt financing from your capital funding strategy. If you have been researching about debt financing all over the internet, then stop looking. Instead, I want you to head on over to kristinashahli.com Forward slash her CEO journey and click subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You're listening to her CEO journey, the business finance podcast for women entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Christina Shahli. If you are new here, a big warm welcome. If we are not connected on LinkedIn, please reach out and say hi because that's where I hang out and share my business finance tips. If you have been listening to this podcast for over a year, I want you to know I appreciate you. My podcast won't be around without your support. This is a free weekly show where my guests and I want to inspire you to achieve financial equality through your business. If there is something I have not covered in this podcast, that you are eager to learn more about. I want to hear from you. Send me a private message on LinkedIn or record your question using the link in the show notes. Simply record your name, business, and your question, and I will feature you in a bonus episode. Remember my conversation with Rachel Hurst, the sales director of Prestige Capital, in episode 64? Rachel is an expert and have such a great knowledge about invoice factoring. If you haven't listened to my conversation with Rachel, you want to find episode 64 and have a listen because in this week's episode, as well as next week, you are going to learn more about how to use invoice factoring strategically, but this time you will learn it from the perspective of those entrepreneurs who have been using invoice factoring as part of their financing strategies. I know many women entrepreneurs are not familiar yet with invoice factoring, and I believe you will have a much better understanding of invoice factoring after this series. My guest this week is Lauren Picasso, founder and CEO of Cure Hydration. Cure is a sports drink made of organic coconut water and Himalayan salt. I invited Lauren to the podcast because she specifically uses invoice factoring as part of her financing strategy in addition to equity financing. By the end of this episode, you will understand the benefit of invoice factoring and how to strategically manage it. You will also understand the process and the type of investment that is more appropriate for equity financing. Let's find out Lauren's CEO journey. Lauren Picasso, welcome to her CEO journey. So Lauren, I would love for you to share with my audience your journey to build this amazing company you have?
0: Yeah, of course. So my background is really in e-commerce and in marketing. I I spent my early career working in fashion. I was a buyer for Bloomingdale's and then worked at Rent the Runway for a few years. No Um, kidding! You're in fashion? Yeah, yeah, I, I started in fashion. And then... Then I moved over to mass e-commerce. I, I was an early employee and director of marketing at Jet.com, which was a startup that was acquired by Walmart in 2016. So I was there for about four years and left when I had the idea for Cure, which really started out as a passion project. I was training for my first triathlon with my younger brother. It had always been something that was on my bucket list because I grew up running and swimming and biking. So it just made sense to to try to do a race and and see see if I could do it. Um, mm. But what ended up happening is I would go out on these really long runs and bike rides, and come back from my workouts and feel really depleted mm. to the point where I would feel physically sick. I would be shivering and feel nauseous and get really dizzy and. I couldn't really figure out what it was. I was drinking a ton of water. I had always really avoided sports drinks like Gatorade because they're just full of added sugar. Mm-hmm. But eventually I realized I actually just needed a lot more sodium. Mm-hmm. I have pretty low blood pressure, so that was part of it. But then I'd also be going out on these long runs and you know, it would be hot outside and I would lose a lot of salt. Um, so I actually eventually just started making my own sports drink. I did a lot of research about effective hydration and discovered a formula that was originally developed by the World Health Organization. It's called Oral Rehydration Solution. Um, essentially what it is, is just a perfect balance of glucose or a little bit of sugar with sodium and potassium. But when it's in that perfect ratio, those three ingredients, it's actually proven to hydrate as effectively as an IV drip. So much more effective than water by itself. Um, It's actually, if you're familiar with brands like Pedialyte, it's what medical grade hydration products are based on. Yeah. So I took that same formula and and followed the same science, but I used a base of coconut water and pink Himalayan salt for a healthier, more organic version that wasn't full of the junk that you find in in drinks like Pedialyte that have artificial colors and. I don't like that. And then, you know, my son plays
1: sport a lot. And then oh, he okay. asks for Gatorade. And I'm like, no, <laughs> for sure, yeah. you're not drinking that stuff.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's just full of garbage. I think, you know, the average bottle of Gatorade has about 28 grams of sugar. Yeah. Um, and it, it's you know, the coloring as well, right? Yeah, like I mean, artificial colors. Yes. It's, it's really not very good for you. And what no one even knows about Gatorade is that it's actually so concentrated with sugar that it's dehydrating, <laughs> which mm. I certainly never knew, knew before I started getting into this. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, the idea behind Cure is basically a reformulated version of something like Pedialyte, but we use organic ingredients. We have no added sugar. I launched the product just over a year ago, last March, and we actually launched as a powder. So the product is a powder that you mix in water. I really liked uh, powder for a few reasons. It's much more environmentally friendly. I, I typically have a reusable water bottle that I use and I, I try to really avoid drinking class, you know, out of plastic yeah. as much as I can. Yeah. So I liked that powder beverages have a much uh, a much better carbon footprint, significantly less packaging, and the energy required to ship the product is just much lower, uh, which, which also makes the economics look a lot better. So powder we have higher margin. We can ship the product anywhere in the United States with with a stamp. It's it's so lightweight. So yeah, we we launched just over a year ago, originally just on e-commerce on our website, Amazon and Thrive Market. But we are now expanding into retail. We just launched in CVS and Whole Foods a couple of weeks ago. And we'll be launching in just over a thousand Walmart stores in September. Wow. I think you told me that your product is also
1: available in Amazon, right? So yes. people can order from Amazon.
0: Exactly. You're Canadian.
1: So you were talking about carbon footprint. You don't want to use plastic. I mean, what did you think about as you are about to
0: create this product? So I started just mixing in my kitchen. I would actually use harmless harvest coconut water and pink Himalayan salt that I just had in my kitchen. Hmm. And the main challenge was, even though the product was really effective, it didn't taste very good because it was basically salty coconut water. So it had a lot of salt, no added sugar. And so I ended up by the sort of the first step was finding a formulator who could help me create the product in powder form, I ended up finding a formulator who had worked with a lot of wellness brands and had a really good reputation. So she ended up uh, blending the product for me and and coming up with our first three flavors, which are lemon, berry, pomegranate, and ginger turmeric. Mm. And then once we had the final formula, then I went out and, and did a search for a manufacturer who could actually source the ingredients and produce the product. Are you doing the manufacturing in the U.S. or is it outside U.S.? Yes, we do all of our manufacturing in the U.S. Most of our ingredients are from the from the U.S. with the exception of the coconut water and the pink Himalayan salt, which of course are international ingredients. Oh, okay.
1: Were you still working at this time when you're doing all this, like testing it in your kitchen and then find a formulator and then find a manufacturer?
0: What were you doing on the site? Yeah, so I was still working at Jet up until January 2018. So I had been working on the idea for about six months, was doing a lot of research, and eventually just got to a point where I really wanted to dedicate myself to the idea full time. So I left in January 2018 to start really focusing on the project and and bringing it to life. Okay, so it seems like all of this, like your product, requires
1: some type of capital. How do you finance this?
0: The first nine months or so, I just bootstrapped. So Mm. I had a bit of savings that I used to create the initial product and do some of the initial branding, but I really didn't spend much. I probably invested around $25,000 in total, just getting sort of an MVP product, minimal Mm. product. And then in August 2018, I went out and began raising my pre-seed round, really just originally from friends and family and some close mentors, and raised $350,000, which was enough to do my first manufacturing run and spend a little bit on marketing to to actually launch the, the product.
1: When you do seed round,
0: and then basically
1: you source through your friends and family and mentor. What exactly do you need to prepare for them in order for them to give you the starting up money, or you because it's just trust based relationship? That's why they give you the three hundred and fifty thousand.
0: No, I would definitely recommend having a minimal viable product. So if you are launching a consumer product, I think having that product, in my case, it was very important for investors to to taste the product and get a sense of what the packaging and branding would look like so Mm -hmm. that they could see that product come to life and and really have a vision for what it could be. I think that's really important. Otherwise, you're just selling an idea. And I, I think most investors, even if they're friends and family, Want to see that you've made some progress. I think outside of that, it's important to have a deck which um, you can use to really communicate your long term vision. And I had financial projections. I think, you know, pre launch, before you've gotten the product out in market, like you're not going to have any historical financials, of course. But to have an idea of, you know, what your projections could look like based on how much you're investing in marketing and what your initial distribution looks like, I think is important so that investors can get an idea of, you know, how big the business really could be and, and, you know, what kind of potential return on their investment they might get.
1: A lot of people struggle when there is no historical data is coming up with the information to do your projection. In your case, what did you do to come up with that projection and to create the pitch deck?
0: Yeah. I mean, I really created a bottoms up model um, Mm -hmm. based on how much money I was raising, how much I could spend on marketing. And really all you can do if you don't have any historicals is make assumptions. You know, what does your What do you think your cost of acquisition is going to look like? And to get there, I did a lot of launch uh, testing before launch. I ran basically fake Facebook ads that drove Mm -hmm. my website. And I tried to get a sense of, you know, what a cost per click would look like. What, how much would it potentially cost me to actually get someone to purchase the product? Mm -hmm. And then from there, you can start modeling out repeat rate and mm-hmm. lifetime value. So essentially, you're just going to want to start from the bottom, make some assumptions, and work your way up to a top-line financial model.
1: So you were doing all of that using your own money at the beginning when you were testing?
0: Exactly. I okay. need to spend very much. I probably spent about $500 before we launched on Facebook marketing, just to get a sense of, you know, which types of audiences worked. Is this product um, better suited for a customer that is working out and very active? Is it more suitable for a customer that gets hungover and is using it for a hangover here? I tested all those different types of audiences to get a sense of, yeah, like how much it would cost to get me customers and which types of customers might be the best target audience. I always say that you shouldn't spend a lot of money until you know that you have a formula that works. So if you figured out the right audiences, the right onboarding flow after customers have purchased your product, once you know that the numbers really make sense, then you can start investing a lot in marketing spend. But in Mm. the early days, you should really just be doing a lot of testing and experimentation, spending as little money as possible with the main goal of just learning as much as you can. Okay. So out of the 25000 when you were still
1: bootstrapping with your own money, what was the majority of
0: your cost? Yeah, it was for the formula, but then actually mostly our branding. So I think one of the challenges with consumer products is Customers expect a finished product. And so you need somebody to design the packaging, somebody to design your logo and the colors and fonts. It's not quite like tech where you can really launch an MVP and not really have much branding. But mm-hmm. because it's a, a physical product that somebody's going to hold in their hand, I do recommend investing in that upfront. A little bit, and we did a lot of testing leading up to that. I you know would send mockups of the packaging out to friends and family, and I would test on usertesting.com to see you know what types of packaging resonated most with our customers.
1: Did you hire a business coach at all because it seemed like, my God, your knowledge about what you need to do before you even raise seats financing is impressive, Lauren.
0: <laughs> Thank you. No, I didn't hire a business coach, but I, I do really try to surround myself with mentors who I know have done you know have done this before. I, I was you know coming from e-commerce, I was pretty new to CPG. I had never created a product before and so I really um, sought out people who had done it before. I reached out to a lot of founders in the CPG space to help me think through what the process should look like
1: people that you knew or people that you, it's just
0: like someone that you admire? A lot of people I just admired. I mean, an example would be uh, Peter Rahal, who is the founder of bar. Mm -hmm. I just reached out to him cold. um, Really? That, you know, I'm thinking about leaving my job at Walmart and I'm interested in starting this brand. What do you think? And you'd be surprised. I mean, a lot of People were pretty responsive and would be willing to jump on the phone with me. And I am very surprised. Like, I mean, they're very busy, right?
1: And then right. they don't know if your product ever going to launch. So right. they're basically <laughs> providing, there's got to be something that you said in the email or something that you did. that kind of pour that
0: confidence in you. I don't know. (laughs) I think it's just, you know, you don't really know until you try. So you might as well try. And I've always had that mentality and I figured, Uh you know, who's like, (laughs) I felt like at the time, you know, who is the the most successful CPT brand right now? And I thought Bar. Other than him, who else did you approach? I've reached out to Justin from Justin Peanut Butter. I reached out to Dave from GT's Kombucha. I've recently reached out to Kathleen from Tate's Cookies. Anyone, you know, I just really admire, especially if I had heard their stories before and good I Good for you. <laughs> I think this is this is such a
1: good knowledge or such a good tip for my audience. You know, you basically just, okay, who who do I admire? And let me learn from them and then see what they said. If they don't respond, okay, I move on. August 2018, you did seat round. 350000 And then you said that
0: is mostly for marketing, correct? For the first production run, actually. Oh, for sure. You know, at that point, we didn't have any confirmed distribution. We were really just planning on launching the product on our website, getting feedback to see if people like the product or not. So I needed some upfront capital to purchase that inventory. And for that, I did need equity because I, I didn't have any historicals to get you know a loan from the bank or anything like that.
1: Now. A lot of people, when they think about equity, one of the common things I heard, I don't want to give up control. Now, I know this is a seed round. So maybe a seed round is not as concerning of giving up control. Is that it?
0: Yeah, I mean, a lot of people say that. I've always worked at venture capital-backed businesses. And my Mm -hmm. philosophy has always really been, if you want your business to be as, as big as it possibly can be, I'd much rather own 10% of a a billion dollar company than a hundred percent of a hundred million dollar company. I think, you know, for me, the more impact that I can have with my brand or my, my products, whatever that is sort of the better. And so I think, you know. You have to think about that, and you also have to think about what type of business you want to start. If you want to start a lifestyle business um, and you don't want to be beholden to any investors, then you might not want to raise any money. Um, but in my case, you know, I wasn't quite ready to raise uh, venture capital money, but I, I wanted some money to to basically help prove my my product and the brand. What do you do next after
1: this? first seed round. Did you do another one?
0: Yeah. So we are actually about to close our seed round. That was like basically a pre-seed round. So I'm in the process of closing a seed round, just over a million dollars. I spent the first year after we launched, we launched in March of 2019, really just gathering data. So we launched on our website, Amazon and Thrive Market, and we got a lot of feedback on our product, which was great. Um, I think if you if we were to launch immediately in retail it would be much it would take much longer to get that feedback and you wouldn't have that direct line to your customers mm. but in our case we got that feedback in real time so we actually spent a long time making tweaks to the formula and and recently launched a new formula that is, has an improved taste and then Yeah, we began also testing what types of retail might work for us. So we tested um, everything from you know local bodegas and health food stores in New York City, fitness studios, and that sort of early on testing allowed me to to understand what the sales process looked like for all these retailers. But then also once we were in store, what types of formats worked, what placement in the store was the best? Is it checkout? Is it grocery? Is it supplements? So we ran a lot of those types of experiments so we could get an understanding of what types of retailers we would be successful in and so that we could go after those retailers in a more aggressive way.
1: What is the purpose of your uh, seed round for this $1 million? What is your thought process?
0: It's primarily for hiring and marketing. Up until now, I'm, I'm the only full-time employee at the company. I have a lot of freelancers and consultants that I work with, but I'm hopeful to hire ahead of ops, ahead of sales and ahead of marketing. And I think those key hires will be really important for us as we scale. And then I'm also, you know, up until now, I've really, all of our branding has been done with freelancers. We haven't invested a ton in the branding. So I'm really hoping to um, elevate the branding even more and begin investing in that. Now that we are we have more traction and we actually are getting into larger retailers like CVS and Whole Foods. I don't need to use that equity financing for inventory because I have known purchase orders coming in from large retailers. Uh, I now have historicals so I can uh, work with, with debt financing companies so that I'm not using all of that equity financing and t- getting that tied up in inventory and actually using it on investments like employees that are going to help my business grow in the long term.
1: Going back to the financial aspect, when you did the, fir- uh, the pre-seed round, that is for first production. You have no confirmed distribution and yeah. you launch on March, 2019. You raised that money August, 2018, right? Yeah. So it takes a few months. When you are creating that projection, how long of a projection are you creating for the pre-seed round? Is it
0: three years? Is it five years? Yeah, I think three years is, is ideal. I mean, I've seen people have projections anywhere from three to five. The reality is you're really not going to have visibility five years out, especially if you are pre-launch. So I think three years is a good sort of middle ground.
1: Now, when you do the seed round for this $1 million, do you go back to the same people that gave you the money on the pre-seed? What would be the strategy there?
0: We um, definitely went back to some of our existing investors and a lot of investors saw our traction and and reinvested. So I think that's a great place to start. And then, yeah, we um, went out and sought out different funds that invest in CPG, that invest in early stage companies and began pitching to those types of companies. I think with CPG, it's interesting. I, it's not like tech where there's a lot of investors that are investing early. Typically, CPG investors will come in a little bit later stage, which can be challenging because, you know, they might not come in until you're doing 5 million in revenue. And so the question is like, well, how do you get from, you know, a million to 5 million? And so from what I've heard, it can be, you know, often sort of just a motley crew of, of friends and family, angel investors, smaller funds that are willing to to take a risk and come in early to a CPG company.
1: But with you, you basically are able to raise $1 million beyond friends and family. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Okay. Some smaller CPG funds and um, angel investors.
1: But how do you even approach them? Just the same like you're finding your mentor?
0: Yeah, I think with (laughs) investors, you know, it's actually better to probably get an introduction I think networking is very important. Every investor that you have, you know, will likely know at least one or two other investors they think would be a good fit. It's honestly just constantly getting intros, asking for intros, asking other CPG founders that I've met, you know, who are your investors? Do you think they might be interested? So networking is very important. I think cold outreach in this case for investors is is more difficult. Um, Mm. They are really typically looking for a warm introduction.
1: Did the investor, anybody ask for a specific return on their investment?
0: Yes. And I think, you know, most VCs typically they want to see a VC outcome, which is really over a billion dollars. And so often they're looking for, they'll have a portfolio and they know that maybe nine out of 10 of those portfolio companies are going to fail, but there's going to be one company that has an 100X return and, and pays you know, pays for the other failures. So often the incentives can be misaligned between an entrepreneur and a venture capitalist. Like you might be starting a business that you would be very happy with a $100 million exit mm-hmm. and, and there might just not be alignment there. And so I think before you take on venture capital money, you should consider what type of business you want to start.
1: So what about in your own experience? Did, did they ask for a certain return specifically? What is your experience?
0: No, they are definitely looking for a return. And so often they'll try to back into that math by giving you an investment that equals a certain percentage of your company. And so they can see that return. You know, sort of the question is, what percentage do they own of the company? And what is your path to $100 million in revenue? Mm. I think most VCs, if they don't see that path to $100 million in revenue, they might just not think you're going to have a big enough return for them.
1: What about for the pre-seed round though?
0: It totally depends. If it's angel investors, you know, I found that angel investors tend to invest really based on you. Do they, do they believe in you and they're really investing on, in their confidence in you. And then they're also investing in the product. So we have like a few celebrity investors, for example, who are athletes and, they really like the product and understand the need for the product. And so they have a, a pers- personal passion. And so you're more likely to find those types of investors in angels or individuals versus VC funds that do you know, need to pay off their LPs and have a certain return on the fund.
1: Now, how long of a projection did you prepare for the seed round? And then are you fo- did you change anything from your pre-seed in terms of a financial projection? I guess
0: you have more data, right? You have more data, yeah. So I had a much better idea of what my margins look like. So the, the projections didn't change as much as just the assumptions changed. The, the model became much more detailed as I had historical. So I know how much I'm spending and marketing and legal and accounting. And so I have all these inputs that, to help really drive those projections.
1: When you said that you're, uh, you're building this projection, Do you create like a spreadsheet or are you using like an online tool?
0: So I use QuickBooks for all of my accounting, which is really, really helpful for historicals. So often what I'll do is I'll take a look at, you know, my profit and loss and my balance sheet historically. And I'll start from there and to just get an idea of what percentage of revenue am I spending in these various different categories. And that helps me model for the future. So, um, you know, if I spend... You know, five percent of revenue on marketing, for example, then I can I can start using that percentage as an assumption moving forward.
1: The five percent is not always flat. I'm pretty sure that you're probably thinking further as well. What am I going to do in year three? What type of marketing as you are growing with your company? And then I guess you're going to be hiring a head of marketing anyway, so. Right, the person's right, going to be responsible
0: exactly. more. Okay. Yeah. So, and- so it does change, of course. I mean, like for my business, it, all of those assumptions just change depending on your channel mix. So mm-hmm. my margin is very different on D2C versus, you know, a retailer like Whole Foods, but also all of the assumptions change, whether that's marketing spend or your cost of product, everything will shift. So you have to model out also, you know, what you think your channel mix is going to look like.
1: When you do all this pricing, at the very beginning, you don't have a confirmed distribution. You didn't go directly to retail. When you go to retail and then you have distribution, obviously, it's added costs. How are you making sure that your pricing won't continue to increase every time you're adding like a distribution channel or you're going into retail? Because you don't want to confuse your customer either,
0: right? When I was deciding our pricing, I started by modeling our worst case scenario. And in our worst case scenario would basically be selling into a distributor who then sells into a retailer. And so the retailer takes a margin, the distributor takes a margin. And so I started from there and said, okay, well, if I need my margin to be this, then I would back into the cost for the customer by modeling out sort of that worst case so that from the beginning, even though my DTC margins are much, much higher, I can price my product scale so that I know when I eventually go into retail, and if I do have a, have a distributor, that I am still profitable and still hitting the margins that I want to hit. It's
1: kind of like you already think about the future. You already have a vision on how you want to sell this product, right? you know, from the very beginning. And then be because of that strategy, you become very strategic in your pricing. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. I
0: mean, I always knew I wanted to be omnichannel. I think that that's important for CPG. Um, most, you know, obviously everyone is moving towards e commerce and the pandemic has only accelerated that. But the reality is that most CPG products are still bought in stores. And so that I knew to be the size I wanted to be eventually, that we would need to have a very strong e-commerce strategy, but also sell brick and-mortar. Um, mm. And so I, know knowing that, priced my product so that I could, I could do that long term. Mm. OK.
1: Now, do sell with CBS, right? and Whole Food, which is you told me you just launched?: Yep. OK. Normally, there will be cash flow gap because you're not going to receive the money from CBS and Whole Foods right away. But at the same time, you have to create your product. Right. The order for them. So how do you maintain or how do you manage that cash flow gap?
0: That's a big challenge with retail is that, you know, you get, I mean, the, the benefit is you're getting really large purchase orders and you're getting those purchase orders or at least have you know, before you get the purchase orders, you have sales expectations. So you have an idea of what your volume is going to look like. The problem is, you know, once you receive those purchase orders and fulfill the orders, you might not get paid for anywhere from 30 to 60 days, depending Mm -hmm. on the retailer. The challenge is you might have to pay your manufacturer before that, or you might have to order enough inventory to also have on hand so that you can fulfill reorders from those retailers. Mm -hmm. And depending on your lead times, you might have to order, you know, more inventory than that initial purchase order that's coming through is going to cost. And often, you know, depending on what your terms are with your manufacturer, it could be, you know, paying for the product as soon as it ships and sort of best case scenario, you know, net 30 days, you pay 30 the product ships. And so there is this gap and the gap can be quite large, especially if you're a smaller brand and you don't have a lot of cash flow. And so I started looking into debt financing. Once I, once I had this, ran into this problem, you know, how am I going to fulfill these large orders? Uh, There's going to be potentially a 30 day gap where I I can't pay my manufacturer. So I eventually discovered, I probably talked to about 10 different debt financing companies found a fund that I know you have spoken to in the past called Prestige Capital. And essentially what they do is they factor your invoices. And and what that means is basically they're purchasing your invoices to a retailer. So as soon as I invoice a retailer like CVS or Whole Foods, they buy those invoices from me. They give me liquidity that I can use to then pay my manufacturer before the retailer pays me. And so that really helps solve this cash flow problem And that is actually less expensive than equity because equity, you know, if you were to raise all this money, which can be very time consuming and you spend, you know, half of it on inventory, it ties up a lot of your cash and actually ends up, you know, potentially being a lot more expensive than debt.
1: But now here's the thing. What you're talking about while Rachel from Prestige Capital is invoice factoring, that is not the cheapest type of debt financing. How do you manage to make sense the cost of borrowing not
0: becoming too high? Yeah. So you want to just limit the time you're holding that cash. Outstanding. So this capital is really not meant to be long-term cap- capital. You would never want to hold on to it for more than 30 days. Um, so you really only to start to sell the invoices when you need that liquidity to pay your manufacturer. But if you don't need to sell your imports,es then you don't have to. And so it's, it's honestly just a nice backup option to have so that you can get liquidity when you need to, to have a good cash flow so you can continue to, to sell your product at really large retailers.
1: Did you even consider going to the bank and then get yeah. like
0: traditional financing? And then why you didn't go that route? So I did, you know, and we, we have taken out some loans from the small business administration. Mm. Um, The challenge with going to a bank is that they're going to base your loan on your historicals. Mm. And as a growing business, you know, our historicals might not be that high. And they're certainly not going to be high enough to get a line of credit that Mm. we would need to purchase the inventory for these larger retailers. And And so until you have six to 12 months of consistent high volume receivables, it's going to be difficult, especially if you're scaling quickly like we are into large retail. It's going to be quickly hard, hard to get enough money.
1: I guess with the invoice factoring, which is, I love it. And, and I'm very familiar with that, but that was from a corporate and larger businesses, right? <laughs> so for small businesses, I wasn't even aware about that. So I love this. When I spoke with Rachel, Rachel did say, you have to be able to know when do you need the cash?
0: Yeah, the idea is that you really only like have it for 30 days. It doesn't get more expensive. So it's like the rate is still the same month over month. Mm -hmm. I think there's a limit. You can't hold it for more than 90 days, but you really wouldn't ever want to.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's for inventory. If you know your process and then you work well, especially with a larger company like CBS and Whole Foods, they already have a schedule. They, You know when you need to deliver to them, right? So you already know the timing when you have to pay your suppliers to create the product, when you have to deliver to them, and then when they're going to pay you. So there is already a timeline. Is it easy to manage, Lauren?
0: I wouldn't say it's easy, but it's um, honestly very comforting to know that we always have this option. So if all of a sudden we, you know, we, when I first got confirmation that we'd be going into CVS, I was really nervous. Like, how am I going to get by all this inventory? But then when we got into Walmart, I already knew I had this option. So I knew I could support it for a growing business. I think it's usually better to take expensive capital so that you can grow and then just ma- try to manage that capital appropriately so it doesn't become too expensive.
1: So when you work with invoice factoring companies such as prestis Capital, when you review the contract, what do you want to focus on? What advice can you give to other business owners that are interested in doing
0: invoice factoring So there's a few things and uh, terms that you should pay attention to. The first is the rate. So just what does the interest rate look like over what time period? You should pay attention to whether there's any penalties. So a lot of debt financing, um, I've noticed the terms might be friendly, the interest rate rate might be good. But for inventory financing, it doesn't make sense because you want to pay that that loan back in less than 30 days because you're just closing this gap in cash flow, but there might be a prepayment penalty. So then that actually really negatively impacts your business. And you end up having to hold on to the loan longer than you would like. And so the interest really starts to rack up. Um, So that's something to pay attention to. The advance rate is another number you should pay attention to. Often debt financing companies won't Factor the entire invoice that you're selling them from a retailer, they might advance you up to 75%. So you need to think about what your pricing structure looks like and, and make sure that you'll still be able to pay your manufacturer with that advance rate. The other thing you should pay attention to is minimums. So some f- funds will say, you know, you are required to factor this amount per year. I like Prestige because they didn't have a minimum so that, you know, if we didn't want to sell them invoices, we didn't have to. Often there might be like a due diligence fee. So you have to decide, you know, if that due diligence fee makes sense for your business. If, you, if you're not sure if you're going to use the factoring, then probably wouldn't it make sense to pay the due diligence fee before you know for sure. But those are a few of the big, the big items that I think are important um, as you start to model that out.
1: I think with Prestige Capital, there is no due diligence process, is there?
0: There is a due diligence process actually not due diligence on you. So it's not like they're looking at our historical society to decide if we're credit worthy. They actually look at the companies we plan to factor. So they did due diligence on all of the retailers that we thought we might factor with. And that's how they decide what your terms look like and how those companies, if they're credit worthy or not, which is extremely beneficial because, you know, these bigger retailers have really good credit. Yes, because like CBS and Whole Foods, there has got to be good credits. Exactly. Like, so, you know, these are big companies. Yes.
1: But would you suggest, though, for somebody that is not dealing with a big retail company, a brand name retail
0: company, does invoice factoring can work, you think? Not if it's not a, a you know, a big company. I think that there's risk on... Both sides. So, mm-hmm. if it's a company that's smaller and they don't have good credit and you decide to factor an invoice, the challenge is that, I mean, the big question is like, what if they don't pay you on time and you're not holding on to that capital longer than you want? So, you need to feel like the company that you are factoring, the retailer, is a company that pays on time. Otherwise, it could be risky for you because you'll be holding on to that capital.
1: You also said that you apply or you have SBA loan. What do you use the SBA loan for? I guess I kind of want to understand what makes sense in terms of financing strategy overall. We already talked about the equity and then what you are using that for. We talk about the invoice factoring. Now, where does the SBA loan comes in, in your strategy?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, the thing to know about Prestige and and probably a lot of other debt financing companies Mm -hmm. is that they'll often take a lien on your receivables. So if we're factoring with Prestige and we have an outstanding balance with them, they have a first lien on our receivables, which means there's only so many other debt financing companies that will work and partner with Prestige to have a second lien. So we... You know, we ended up taking a loan from the SBA with everything that's going on in the pandemic, and they were willing to take a second lien. So we were able to work together with Prestige.
1: Oh, okay. So the SBA loan, is that part of the PPP that you are
0: using or this is... Separate, actually. So um, the SBA had a PPP loan, and they also had an everyday disaster loan just based on the pandemic and, you know, we didn't actually see, you know, any major, there was a, a lot of different loans you could apply to. We didn't qualify for, there was one loan that you could apply to where you had to show that you saw had a 25% decrease in revenue mm-hmm. compared to last year, which we didn't qualify for because we had, we were growing and we also didn't have historicals for 2019. But because we faced challenges in our supply chain due to the pandemic, we still qualified for the loans we applied.
1: What surprised you in the process of raising capital?
0: That debt financing was so easy. I had come from a background of venture-backed companies. And so we had raised some growth, like some venture debt before. Like often at these companies, you would raise a venture round and then raise venture debt alongside it. But I had never really heard of inventory, like invoice factoring before. And I was surprised at how straightforward and easy it was. In my scenario, like I needed capital in like two weeks. And <laughs> so, like, you know, that it's ours. That was tight. Yeah. It's very tight. You know, and um, when you're raising equity financing, sometimes you can get lucky. You get a lot of momentum and you're able to close that round faster. But for the most part, you should plan on it taking three to four months. And if it's in the middle of a pandemic, it might take a little bit. <laughs> it's long Yeah. So, you know, I was really surprised just at how quickly we got capital. It was, they just moved really quickly. And when I sell them my invoices, I get capital the next day. When did you find
1: out about the deal with CBS and Whole Foods?
0: So Whole Foods, I had known for a while. We found out in December. We're just launching in, uh, we just launched in Northern California. So it wasn't a national buy. It was about 45 stores. CBS, we had done a pilot with CBS actually last summer in eight stores that went well. And so they decided to roll out the program uh, to 3,000 stores. So we found out in February. Right before
1: the pandemic. before the pandemic. So so you started working with Rachel when? In February. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So what about the equity financing?
0: Were you surprised with the process? Were there any struggle at all? Yeah. I mean, I think what I was surprised by was how few funds there are that exclusively invest in CPG. Mm-hmm. And so coming from um, e-commerce, you know, having worked at Run the Runway and Jet.com, there was a lot of VCs that I knew and had worked with, but they don't really invest in CPG. CPG, which I didn't know before getting into, getting into this, uh, tends to be later stage because there are lower barriers to entry most funds are looking for a lot of traction, and mm-hmm. so there's just this awkward in-between phase where you know the funds that invest in CPG are looking for more traction, whether that's you know, sales data from retailers or a run rate of five million dollars. They're looking for later stage companies, and I had actually, you know, most of my experience was in tech, where there are a lot of funds that will come in and invest before you have launched
1: did you ever hear a no from venture capital? And then how did you overcome that, Lauren?
0: <laughs> I think you have to be really strong and able to handle rejection because you're not just going to get rejected by, by venture capitalists or funds. You're going to get rejected by everybody. You're going to ha- you know, hear retailers tell you no. I think the key is really to be persistent and listen to feedback. So find out why they said no. I think that's really important. And see what you can do to potentially change their mind later on. You know, often it might just be, you know, you're too early. Um, and then you, you should ask questions like, you know, what types of metrics would you like to see that would be appealing? You know, how can I make this business attractive to you? And then you keep them posted on your progress. And eventually you can change those no's into yes. and I, I certainly found that with retailers.
1: That's That's a good advice. Okay, Lauren, what advice can you give to women entrepreneurs? They, wa- they are trying to decide right now between seed round, between factoring or any other types of financing.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you should really create your own destiny. I think mm-hmm. if you're not able to raise equity financing or if you think equity financing is too expensive based on the type of business that you're trying to create, then look into other sources of capital. I think you should have an open mind, whether that's a loan from a bank or invoice financing or equity, just have an open mind. And, and, you know, if you have an idea of what type of business you want to create, just create it and don't let a no stop you from creating the type of business you want to create.
1: Lauren, this has been awesome. Now, where can people find you?
0: You can buy Cure Hydration on curehydration.com. And -hmm. if you'd ever like to reach out to me, you can find me on LinkedIn. Thank you
1: so much, Lauren. It has been great.
0: Thank you, Christina.
1: Thank you so much for joining me here every week at Her CEO Journey, the business finance podcast for women's entrepreneurs. Head on over to christinashahli.com forward slash her CEO journey to subscribe for this podcast. And don't forget to tell other women entrepreneurs that this podcast is available for free in the podcast apps of their choice. Until next time, and let's continue to grow a business that fuels the life that you want to live.